It's all right if you want to stay standing. It's okay. That was the Hebrew way. The, uh, uh-oh. the rabbi would sit and all the people stood. I don't know where we got that backwards. <clears throat> okay, so um, I really wasn't kidding. Like, I, I would love to see like 250 more of these show up. Um, I'd love for us to see 100%. So, if, again, if your family is someone who's not been able to make that commitment and you didn't get to do it during that time, again, you can keep doing it at any point. In fact, one of the funny things is the only other time we've done pledges or commitments here was for the youth building. And, uh, and all the ex- experts were like, hey, just so you'll know, you only should plan on about 80% of your financial commitments actually coming in. And, you know, I mean, you know I'm new at that kind of stuff. So I'm like, really? That's kind of sad. And in the end, I don't know the final number, but it was something like 114% of our pledges came in. And uh, so a whole bunch of people were still giving and pledging throughout the entire process. I, I hope that's the case here. Um, but so much of this is about us being unified as a body. And, and I think God wants that kind of unity here. And so I think that's, a, that's, that's the challenge for you. If you didn't get to do this and you still want to do it, again, I know if you don't know me, you may be going like, really, the guy's still talking about money? I, I'm really not. And those who know me know I'm really, I think those of you who know me know I'm, I'm really not. I, I really would love to see uh, the participation in the Spirit on anything we do, but especially something like this. So if you still have to fill that out and want to, just drop it off on the stage at some point or in your, and hand it to one of the desks or to one of the leadership at some point in the end, and, and that'll be great. Or click on that email. So this is Palm Sunday. Um, and, and so a lot of times liturgical churches celebrate this very intentionally, and we may in the future. In fact, I think it's really likely we'll try a little bit more of that moving forward. And we do, I do love church history, and I love the liturgy and the connection throughout the traditions of church worship, which that's literally really what liturgy is, is the, the tradition of worship. And so, and, and you don't know, but we, we do more of it than you realize. We connect through the power of the hymns um, and through the times of prayer and, and the, the different things we do. And we'll be doing, um, I think John's going to announce when we're done, a, a Monday, Thursday service this week, um, which, which is very much so a connection to liturgy, to the traditions of worship in the church. And, and we do some of that on Easter, when we do communion, when we do baptism, all of that is like that. And, uh, and though we're, we may not always do it the traditional way, we're still connecting to that. And so maybe if you grew up in a, in a more traditional church, liturgical church, this Sunday you'd have had children waving uh, palm branches or something like that, and uh, that, that'd be great. And again, maybe we'll do that. Um, but to, to know what the real emphasis today, so today is the celebration. We don't know a lot about the, the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, we get snippets here and there. In fact, what's even weirder is it's even hard to tell what happens day to day, even from Scripture. If you ever try to record it, um, it seems pretty obvious what happens on Sunday is mostly that he walks from Jericho with a huge crowd of people to Jerusalem. When he arrives in Jerusalem, um, that crowd, on his way there, he stops uh, as, as he's going through Bethphage and says, hey, hey, some guys, run over to Bethany real quick because there's a donkey there tied to a building, and I need that donkey. Uh, it's a, a, a child donkey. A, a donkey's full, and I need, I need that donkey because I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on it, which everyone would have been so excited about. All these Jewish people following him from Jericho, like, oh, this is it, because that was prophesied 500 years before that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And so 500 years, so America is 241 years old. Twice that is the gap, and a little more, those of you more mathematically minded, um, as twice as the gap from the time that the prophet Zechariah prophesied that and the day that it happened in reality. That's a long time to be waiting for something, 500 
years. That was, that's amazing. Only God knows quite literally how long it was between maybe the first prophecy, which was actually to the serpent in the garden, that he will crush your head. That prophecy of Jesus as well, maybe thousands of years, no one knows exactly how long before Jesus came and did that. And sometimes we have to wait a long time for prophecy. We're in one of those waiting periods now in some ways. Um, although every time we see things crank up in the Middle East, you're always like, this could be it. I mean, it's going to be a last one. We'll talk about birth pains here in a minute. But, uh, but so as we, as we analyze that conversation, we're recognizing 500 years before the prophet said this would happen. Jesus sends some of his followers, hey, go grab that donkey. When they ask, hey, why are you stealing our donkey? You're just supposed to say, the master needs it. That's going to be sufficient. Sure enough, that's exactly how that plays out. Some think that there literally was a donkey kept in Bethany at all times, unridden, just in case the Messiah showed up. That's how seriously they took these prophecies. That probably had been sitting there, it was tied up, it was always there, and when someone came finally and declared that they demanded it, it they, and, and in this case, they got it. Now, one of the weirdest things about the story is that the Romans didn't stop Jesus from coming in through the eastern gate um, with a bunch of followers, probably because they were caught off guard. One, it's in the middle of Passover week, or the beginning of Passover week. There might have been a million new people in Jerusalem this week, um, which, which would be huge now. Then was stunning. A million people didn't gather anywhere in the world hardly at that time. And so you'd had a million extra people. And also Jesus wasn't gathering a crowd from Jerusalem, which is what the, the, the so-called messiahs from the past Allegedly, the Romans had stopped multiple people trying to ride a donkey with a crowd of people from Jerusalem into the eastern gate. They'd stopped them before because the Romans knew perfectly well now what that meant. I don't know if that's true, but that's, I've been taught that that was the case. So when Jesus shows up, he surprises them because he doesn't get, gather a crowd in Jerusalem. He gathers one in Jericho. They wander there. They go down the, the Mount of Olives. They go through the Gidron Valley. They go up the other side, and they go through the eastern gate. And everyone had to be humming. Like as they saw this happening, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. They're referencing, they're connecting him to King David. They're connecting him to the prophecies, the prophecies of the Messiah. And he comes up and, and it may be that Jesus at this time cleanses the temple. It may have been the next day. It's, it's hard to tell in the, in the different um, passages, the different ways it's taught through the Gospels. But so he comes up there. The, the Gospel of Mark has the most beautiful imagery of it. So can you, can you feel the excitement? There's a million people here. It's Passover week. He's riding a donkey all the way up to the temple gates. He gets out of the temple gate. He walks up. He walks in with this crowd of people who are waving boldly. This, this is it. And, it. and the book of Mark, it says, and he, he goes into the temple and looks around and seeing that it's late, he went back home. The greatest, most anticlimactic moments in history. Everyone would have been going, wait, what? 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 Everyone would have been texting the same thing. I'm not going to say what it was, but they all would have been texting the same three letters. What is, what is going on here? And so then they would have, everyone would have then walked all the way, they were walk, like spreading out like, what's going on? And so they go back to Bethany. He goes back and spends the night, and spends the night. And then we have Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and then the days kind of fall apart. It's hard to tell what days are happening in different things, and we really don't know. And here's what we know. All of this was spoken of before it happened. We, we looked at that week one. We talked about prophecies that this week, the things that happened in, in that last week. So we, but here's what we do know. We, know. we know Sunday and we know Sunday. We know that he was proclaimed Messiah the, 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 in the, the heir of David, the son of the living God. And here we have on the next Sunday, 
He is risen from the dead. Somewhere in between, he faced a trial and was murdered by the Romans and the Jews and for our sins. But the truth is he gave his life freely. And then it's, at, we don't know exactly, we actually don't even know exactly for sure what day that was. Can you imagine that? We're not even sure if that was Thursday or Friday or even though people have for, uh, traditionally said Good Friday, there's arguments for Thursday. We don't, we don't know. It doesn't matter. What we know is he gave his life as a ransom for all of us. And then on Sunday, we do know when this happened. On Sunday, some people showed up at the tomb and it was empty. And so next week, I want you to know, we're going to talk about this again in a second, but I want you to know next week, if you've got friends who you say like, I'd love to invite them to church, coworkers, neighbors, you know they don't go to church and you've thought, I'd love to invite them, but... I mean, you might talk about money, right? We just, that's ah, just it's perfect. I brought my neighbors and he mentions money. That's the worst thing. Or, or he's going to teach about something. That who, I mean, it's going it's to be like this. Sunday. So each Sunday you kind of have to choose. I, I do. You don't. I have to choose. It's like I've got about 30, 35 minutes and I've got to decide, is this going to be more educational? Is this going to be more like inspirational, more application. Like I have to kind of mix those, but I have to prioritize one. Today's a little bit more educational um, than some of the others. I've already given you the applications. Be comforted. God knows what he's doing. And two, have that sense of urgency. Those are going to be the applications of any teaching on prophecy that I do. Those two. So I hope you experience that. But today's a lot of education. You might go, gosh, I brought my friend and he talked about earthquakes in Israel. (sighs) Next week. I'm going to be teaching through a straight-up defense of the resurrection. This is why it is rational to believe that Jesus Christ was dead and rose again. And so this will be a great, it'll be a great Sunday to invite people. Now, I do want to comment. It'll be a really great time for you to invite them to the first service. Okay? There may be 800 people in here this hour next week. Traditionally, that's, that's been the case. Um, and so if you have the margin to come first service, please do so. Um, if, you, if you don't, that's fine. There will be no adult or even youth education next week. It will all be, you'll either be working or worshiping one of those two things, um, all three. We have 7.30, kind of, it's not really sunrise, but at 7.30 we have a sunrise, we have a baptismal service, come for that. Um, if it's been like in the last few years, it'll be a monsoon next week, and uh, so in that case we'll be baptizing people in the horse trough in here. But if not, It'll be out there in the beautiful, it's under, the, it's under, sorry, it's under, right now it's under, you'll see it maybe next week, but the, um, everybody's like, I don't see a horse drop, like, what is he pointing at? Um, sorry, it's, it's hidden, um, but the, uh, uh, whatever, it sets, that'll be at 7.30, and then we will have um, a 9 o'clock service at 10.30 like normal, and so I, I, if you can come to 9, please do, because we then need you to work, greet people, take care of kids, second service, anyway, that's for members, a little family business there, so he shows up. Matthew 24, back to Matthew 24, and I'll make sure and and get through as much of this as we can. Going back to this conversation on prophecy, Jesus is going to be very clear about some of this. They asked him a couple of questions. When he said the temple was going to be destroyed, they asked, well, when is that going to happen? And and what are the signs of the end of times? So they asked kind of two separate questions, and he's going to answer both. They mix a lot, but not entirely. So Matthew 24, see that no one leads you astray, Jesus says, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See, you're not alarmed. This must take, must take place. The end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Now, the birth pain interpretation is key to understanding prophecy. 
Um, so some of you have had birth pains. Um, all of you have been on the other side of it, but, but some of you have, had, have actually experienced them. Um, only about half of you can, um, but, but of that half, many of you have. So you've experienced what that's like. You have a birth, you have a contraction. And then, and then you have another contraction, and it's typically a little worse than the first one. And then, it, and then they continue to build, and they get worse and worse. And somewhere around in the first 10%, you think, I, I will never experience this much trauma in my life. But then the two minutes later, you have another one that's worse. And then you think, that's it. It cannot get any. And then they do. And then, they, then hopefully then they do an epidural, and you're good. So that's a, but until then, there's no prophetic epidurals. That's my whole point this morning. No, I'm teasing. The... Um, Never thought about that till now. It falls apart nowadays. Um, okay, don't be led astray is the most common thing, but understanding that's all through this passage. Don't be led astray. Don't be fooled. Don't let. It's it's key to the teaching here is to understand that's going to happen to a lot of people. I'll get there. But wars, rumors of wars, nations divided, and famines and natural disasters. This was not just like woo big scary talk for these people. Um, earthquakes are common in the region of Israel where Jesus was teaching at this time. In fact, about 60 years before Jesus taught this had been a massive earthquake in Israel. Thousands have died. Josephus claimed 30,000 or more died in this earthquake. So when your buildings are stacked stones, when there's a big earthquake, people die. That's the old saying, earthquakes don't kill people, buildings kill people. So the, these, these things are going to happen. Um, so when Jesus says there's going to be an, there are going to be great earthquakes, no one said like, "Oh, cool! Like we're in L.A." Like they weren't thinking that. They were thinking, "Oh boy, more earthquakes!" And in fact, that did happen um, in the 700s, and a lot of them. I mean, just consistently. So, <laughs> for example, <coughs> those of you who've been when you're in Galilee, we sometimes go to Chorazin, but this is all over the place. But Chorazin is a city in, in the Galilee region that is made entirely of black, porous stones. Now, you don't have to be a professional geologist to know what that means. When you're sitting around a lake that's at the bottom of a circle of mountains, one section of that is called the Golan Heights. It's totally a giant circle of mountains with a lake down in the bottom of it. And there's whole cities built out of black, porous rock. Where are you? You're in a caldera of a volcano. That's what was there. And so the earthquakes are not uncommon in this part of the world. The Rift Valley is a valley where tectonic plates meet. And so this is a, all the way down that region, earthquakes happen. Another set of massive ones hit in this early 700s AD. In the early 700s, a series of earthquakes sh shattered the region. Um, every major Roman city in Israel was destroyed. Um, when we go, we visit a place called Bet Shan. Bet Shan is an incredible place to go visit. Um, in many ways, it is cooler than seeing the Roman cities in Rome because in 700, it was leveled and left and buried. And so when they, they literally are still digging up a giant Roman city where no one's lived since the 700s. And so it's, it's, it's so, in it's not intact in that it all fell down, but it's intact as in all the pieces are still laying there together. So it's amazing to go visit these places and see these. That's in the 700s. In the 2,000 years since Jesus walked the roads and towns, uh, walked the roads of the cities and towns of Israel, nearly every city he visited has been totally wiped out by earthquakes. Um, in many cases, they're just abandoned, like Bethshan, like Chorazim, like Bethsaida, other places that are mentioned. You go visit them now, and they look like they looked in 700 and something AD because everyone was like, you know what? 
it'll be easier just to leave. And they just walked away from those cities. That's how destroyed they were. But these are the beginning of birth pains. We're still going to see earthquakes around the planet. Sometimes maybe they'll be worse. Sometimes they'll be more expansive and more disastrous. That's what we expect. There's been a never-ending series of wars and rumors of wars. There's never been a time in human history of peace. Isn't that amazing? So we could imagine peace long before Jesus Christ walked the earth. People could fantasize about a utopian time of peace. The Romans sought to create peace. We ended up calling it the Peace of Rome, Pax Romana. That is a total uh, misnomer. It was, it was a little bit peaceful for some of the Romans, but the truth of the matter was this should be called the, the Western enslavement of Rome. That Rome had essentially enslaved all other nations for a short period of time. And even they were never quiet. A part, if it helps you, a part of Pax Romana if this counts as peace, was a big wall built by a guy named Hadrian to keep the Scots and the Jutes and the Picts out because I guarantee you, they never had peace. Scotsmen are not known for that. The best thing you can do rather than conquer the Scotsmen is just to put up a wall and pretend like they don't exist. That's the closest the Romans ever got to, Romans ever got to peace. They knew better. So listen, stay out of the woods of northern Britain. You just trust me. You don't want to be anywhere near these people. They're crazy. All right, so... Uh, that was, that, that we haven't had it. We still don't have it. Isn't that amazing? I mean, soon we're, we, we've now passed by all the future movies and all that kind of stuff, except like Star Trek. But just so you'll know, I'm pretty, uh, pretty I feel confident in this prediction. There's going to be, if we're still around in the 2400s or 2300s, whenever uh, the first Star Treks were, I'm going to predict, here's, here's me being a prophet, I'm going to predict turmoil in the Middle East. That's my prediction. <laughs> I'm also going to predict sand in the Middle East. That's another part of my prediction. This is, this is not new. It's not going anywhere. The truth is, this is part of what humanity is. We kill each other, sometimes for the most minimal reasons. Part of why we need a Savior. We're not going to save ourselves. If we were going to, we would have a long time ago. This is not something that in the, true peace will not be brought by anybody but Jesus Christ. He makes it clear that these listeners, the people listening to him at the time will experience it, but it's not going to end. He tells them, then it gets more personal. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Um, he may have just been thinking about modern day church politics, but there may have been something else to that. So many false, wow, that didn't get, even get a laugh. Like, ouch. Okay, so sorry. Um, and because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In the midst of wars and natural disasters, people will begin to face hatred at the personal level because of Jesus Christ. Persecution, tribulation, death, it's part of what, it's, you know, we're facing just the first stages of this in our nation. 241 years ago, we had some very intentional founders who wanted to create, though they weren't creating a, a Christian nation, I may have mentioned this last week, but weren't creating a Christian nation, but they were creating a nation and a government system in which being a citizen of heaven and being a citizen of that nation overlapped incredibly well. That was on purpose. They did that on purpose. They wanted those things to... It's, you, being a good citizen of the United States should make you a good citizen of heaven and vice versa. 
And now, just for the first time, really, for about the last 60, 70, maybe 80 years, we've started watching that divergence happen, watching those things not overlap as well and slowly begin to change and begin to, I mean, quickly by our standards, but, but begin to shift. And so now we're, there are times when Christians have to ask, am I a good Christian now or am I a good American now? How do I, do I follow the cultural teachings of our nation or do I follow the biblical teachings of, of Christ? And the apostles. And, and that's going to continue to happen. So you'll know we can grieve it and we probably should. We should resist it and probably should. But no, this last 200, the, the first 200 years of American history where those overlap so nicely is freakish. That, didn't, that hasn't existed hardly ever in the history of Christianity. It doesn't, have, it doesn't exist hardly anywhere in modern Christianity. We have it here. Praise God, we've had that blessing. But let's realize it's probably going to start costing us something to be citizens of heaven in the United States. Again, that's, that's sad, but it shouldn't shock us. We've had this blessing for a long time. What it means is we must be discipling one another and the children who God gives to us to be prepared for more and more of that. Again, right now, you, we're, we have the tiniest taste of it. Do you think the Chinese government sees being a good Christian and being a good citizen of China as the same thing? I would guess not. Certainly Iran would not say that, right? Being a good citizen of the nation of Iran and being a good citizen of heaven don't overlap at all. One will get you killed by the other. So, so keep in mind, as we move forward, Jesus said this was going to happen. We shouldn't be stunned by it. Anytime there's a Christian, there's, anytime there's a culture, it's going to come in conflict with Christianity eventually. Then we have enemies from within, false prophets and false teachers. And we've had a never-ending processional of false prophets in Christianity. It started from day one. Um, almost from day one, you had these people called the Judaizers. The Apostle Paul is just flabbergasted by these people. It seems like they follow on his footsteps. These were Jewish Christians who, who misunderstanding the teaching of Jesus would follow behind Paul. Paul would go somewhere like Ephesus or Galatia or something and he would teach the gospel and people would be converted and they would, oh, this is an amazing thing. We've grown up with all these ridiculous Greek gods that clearly it, almost no one buys anymore. This is a ridiculous teaching. What's the truth about God? And Paul would come in and he would teach about Jesus Christ and what God has done. And these rational Greeks would go, that makes sense. And they would follow this teaching. And then right behind Paul, it seems like two weeks later, but probably more like years later, but very quickly, these group of Christians would come who, who were Jews and would say, hey, we're so glad you guys are Christians. Um, but you seem to have skipped a step. See, you didn't realize that Jesus was a, was a Messiah for Jews. And you guys are Greeks. So you can't just convert straight to Christianity. You've got to convert to Judaism first. Then you can convert to Christianity. So we've got to teach you a bunch of laws, and we've got to get you circumcised, and we've got to do all this type of stuff and get you to be a good Jew. Then you can become a Christian. And Paul would write, and, and, and the people would go like, okay, because they weren't thinking very hard about this. And Paul would have to write these letters back. That's what we have in, in the book of Galatians, for example, saying, what are you thinking? Man, are you out of your mind? You're trading in the grace for law? Why would you do that? What are you? And that's that's when you read through the, the especially Galatians, um, you you read this as as how frustrated Paul has become. So that's an example. Another example you might read about if you study this: the Mithras cult in in that ha, that was going on at about the same time <coughs> in Roman teaching, or Gnosticism. Um, Gnosticism was a religion that was rising up at about the same time. And by the way, I'll just comment another modern day expression of this that's false teaching. 
Um, that was, I was, and I just got to admit to you guys, I was really disappointed by this. I really love, um, this, this is a weird way my brain works. I love when the enemies of Christianity uncover something really cool. That even if, it's, even if it's a hard thing to fight back against, I think that's fascinating. I love reading the kind of neo-atheist books that are out there now. Most of them, so you'll know, uh, they're, just, they're just drivel and they're lightweight at the best. I mean, they really are just hitting on the fact that people don't check sources. They have no idea what they're talking about. It's, anyway, so if, if you read those, great. If you read one of those and you get really confused or frustrated by one, let, let's, let's have coffee and talk about it because... I feel confident that it's not as impressive as they, as they say. They love to say all kinds of like, pretty much everyone agrees with me on this. And it turns out no one agrees with them on that. They have no citation. That's what amazes me now is how the people will say that and have no notes, no citations, no nothing. Like, you know, you don't get to say that. Now, so in this situation, they, they, one of the common ones recently has been that these, all these religions that were going on about that time, Gnosticism or the Mithras cults or other, or that Christianity copied those or some other faith, like the story of Horus, one of the Egyptian gods, or there's even one of the Hindu gods, although they never make a really good case for how early Christians would have known the Hindu religion very well. But that's a, um, that, or even, my, even a new cool one is that the book of Mark, for example, is just copying the Odyssey. That, that the apostle Mark, or, or Mark was just copying the Odyssey when he wrote his book. Um, the book of Mark is just a rewrite of that. So, <clears throat> um, so I, I have, I, by the way, if, if those of you don't know, this is, I don't make any money on this, but I, I, have, I have a website, um, chrismleg.com, and, and I write about stuff like this. Like if I find research on it, and I can't, I, mean, I don't have time to teach for hours and hours on it here, um, and so I have different things. So what I did is I was so fascinated by this. Like, this seemed like a good one. Like, this will be so cool if Horace really is a lot like Jesus. And then maybe could, could, could we make a case, could anti-Christians make a case that we just copied the Egyptian religions? And that would, wouldn't that be cool to learn about? And you're, you're like, no, there'd be nothing interesting about that at all. To me, that's intriguing. And so I went and looked. And let me just tell you, I was radically disappointed. Um... There, were, there are best-selling books out there making claims. You know, well, Horace's mother's name was Mary. Um, it, it, it wasn't. Like, it, just, it actually just wasn't. Like, that's just total invention. Um, I could not, I mean, I was stunned. Isis, the goddess, has, has like dozens of different names. One of them has an M and an A and an R in it. Um, clearly, that's copied, right? Like, and that wasn't, even her, that wasn't even a common name for her. I was so stunningly blown away by how erratically inaccurate these were. And there are best-selling books out there about this. I was so brokenhearted that this wasn't a better argument. Oh, look at that. David, you're so funny. I must have rambled on long enough. Dave was like, I'm bored. I'm looking at his website. So, so here, here's an example. This is the one to walk to the Odyssey. I thought, well, it's not like you can't buy a copy of the Odyssey. And I already own a copy of Mark. And so I just sat down and read them and compared them. Here's the deal. There are men in boats in both. Um, both the Odyssey and the book of Mark has men in boats. Um, so, does, so does Moby Dick, and so I'm checking it out next just to see if maybe it was... Oh, my gosh. It was so bad. So that actually literally is a, is a line by... Not line by line, but like a section by section comparison of the book of Mark and the Odyssey. And I honestly was just a little sad. Um, I wanted it to be better. It wasn't. It was terrible. This kind of stuff is going on now all the time. False teachings, false prophecy, false all kinds of stuff. And, and it's, just, it's just sad. Um, it hasn't stopped. Um, Billy Graham years ago referred to the gospel as the anvil around which the hammers lay broken. That's a beautiful picture and it's accurate. There, for 2,000 years, people have been taking their best shots at it. 
And time after time after time, their best shot falls apart. And one of the things I like about it is very often their best shot turns out to end up being a defense for the faith. Um, It's amazing how often that happens too. I love it. All right. But this phrase, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Um, (coughs) Here you go. That phrase I love because it sounds like a box that needs to be checked, right? So the end will come when this has happened. The problem is the, the language that's going on here is a little tough. So when we translate this word nation, what we picture is, a, is like a boundary type of nation. So uh, we have here um, Nigeria, right? Nigeria. Nairobi threw me off earlier. So I think this is, this. yeah, well, there it says in big letters, Nigeria. Thank you for adding that, David. I had that confusion first service, so he added that. Here's Nigeria as a nation. So clearly the gospel has been taught in Nigeria. But the word here, which is the, the root concept of ethnos, where we get the word ethnicity, people groups. Here's what this same nation looks like divided out into people groups. And all of a sudden, it becomes a whole lot more complex, the thought of reaching all of these people. It's not something as simple as, as just within a national boundary, which, by the way, didn't exist at the time of Christ. The national boundaries didn't. So one, here's a very conservative definition. An unreached people group is, quote, a people group within which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians able to evangelize their own people group. Now, that's a tough definition. So there has to be a group of Christians prepared within that people group prepared to evangelize other people within that group. That's a very conservative definition. By the liberal definitions, by the most liberal definitions, this has been accomplished. The gospel has been preached in all nations. By the most conservative, we are probably a few decades from it. Um, But it is happening very quickly. Between the absorption of people groups into other people groups, because there's less people groups now, because they get absorbed into other groups, um, or through the work of, of, of Bible translators and missionaries. Um, uh, I've been talking to you guys about somebody from Papua New Guinea who's been translating the Bible for, for one of their groups. That has been accomplished. She sent me a photo of herself holding the new Bible. I know Dan's parents, um, Dan Campbell's parents recently did a translation, right? I'm doing this right? Recently did a translation for a tribe in Brazil, uh, for a tribe in Brazil. And they're trying to go down to celebrate, like literally they're going to celebrate the fact that these people now have the Bible in their own language. And or maybe it's just the New Testament. New Testament in their own language. This is happening all over the world right now like this. People groups who didn't have a written language before are being taught a written language and then given a copy of Scripture. It's an amazing process as it's happening. Um, It should be at at the most conservative. This should be a box checked within the next few years. How about this one? So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Certainly that phrase was added in by somebody later, by the way. Then let those who are in the Judea flee to the mountains. Um, This is referenced in other Jewish writings, even outside of Scripture. Daniel talks about a leader who will come and wreak havoc on the holy city and set up something um, inappropriate, awful, an abomination on the place of the temple. Daniel 11.31 says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and its fortress, shall take away a regular burnt offering, and they shall set up an abomination that makes desolate. Desolate things, destroyed, um, torn to pieces, no longer serving its purpose, idol worship, blasphemy, sexual sin. These are desolations, detestable things. Um, As the temple was destroyed, I mentioned that Hadrian, 
who built a big wall to hold out the Scots. Um, he also built um, a, a temple to the god Jupiter on the Temple Mount after the temple was destroyed. Certainly, this would be an example of an abomination of desolation. Um, uh, it also happened before, not long before Jesus Christ, which resulted in the Maccabean Revolt. You may have read about that. Um, here you had a, another Roman procurator, I think it was a procurator, who sacrificed a pig on the temple, in, on the altar in the temple, meant to profane. This was certainly, is that, is that an abomination of desolation? Sure it is. Um, the temple has been leveled and redestroyed over and over again. There was a time in which all it was was a place where the, where the crusaders stored horses, just wandering around up there, eating and doing their business up on the temple mount. That's probably an abomination. Think about this, Islam. Islam denies um, the, the deity of Jesus Christ. They teach that God is not a father, that the, who we call God the Father, Yahweh, is not, that he is not a father. Um, they, they, this, these are significant teachings within Islam. And right now, there's a dome, a big shiny dome on the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock. And in addition to that, there's a mosque. The Alaska Mosque is up on the Temple Mount. Is that an abomination of desolation? I don't see why not. Again, this is the birth pains concept. This is going to happen. And it's going to happen again. And it's going to happen again. And it's going to happen again. And eventually it'll happen a last time. And then we'll be done. That's pretty significant. He warns his listeners to flee when they see this stuff happening. And by the way, the early Christians did. One of the reasons that the early church existed and stayed in existence was because when they saw armies gathering around Jerusalem, they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They bailed on the city. They headed for the hills. Many people didn't. It has always been a good idea to leave Jerusalem when armies gathered. Typically, armies are about to come in, and that nasty habit of the armies that invade Jerusalem is that they're very emotional. This is a religious thing for them, including Christians, by the way. When the Christians took Jerusalem in the Crusades, they slaughtered every man, woman, and child they could find. It was an awful, ungodly, unchristian thing to do, but most of them were so ignorant they had never, they had no idea. They were just doing what they were told. Darkly, Jesus warns people, watch, be aware, keep your eyes open. He doesn't give dates or times, but markers, just like in the conversation we had about going to Tuscaloosa. If you missed that, that's about three weeks ago. Look it up online or get it on iTunes and listen to it. That's discussing the basics of prophecy. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Uh, now, <coughs> I've got to tell you this just because it's fascinating to me, <clears throat> but this is the kind of thing that makes me run late. I still want to share it with you real quick. Um, it's interesting that it says vulture um, because that's not the word in Greek here. Um, the word in Greek is clearly eagle, but in a lot of translations will say vulture because obviously vultures are what gather where corpses are. In the Hebrew, the word for eagle and, and vulture are the same word, big bird. Uh, that's, that's kind of the idea here, large bird. In, in Israel, a large bird is a vulture. They don't have a lot of big eagles there. So that's why Paul's poster that they will mount up on wings like a big vulture. Uh, is what his, this says great bird, doesn't it? Yours does. They will mount up with wings like a great bird. Eagle, eagle we like eagle because we're Americans, right? A big, a big bird is an uh, eagle. But, but the... Um, 
That's, and we're all Tolkien fans, right? So the eagles are coming. That's a whole, anyway, that, that's, but the truth is, like in the New King James, it says eagles because that is the Greek word there. Why? Why would Jesus, we all read the Bible like it's a textbook. We don't read it like it, it really was. Why might Jesus have said eagles here? Why might he have said eagles? Anybody? Anybody know what the Roman standard was? It was an eagle. Romans showed up with a big eagle on the top of their, that, that was what they did. That was why, that, by the way, that was why the Nazi symbol was an eagle. It was because they were the next Roman Empire. That's what they thought. And so, and so that's, the eagles, were, I think Jesus is making a political commentary here. This is a jab at the Romans. Hey, wherever their corpses, you can count on the Romans being there. That's kind of what he's saying. This is, a, it'd be like today if he'd said, hey, where the carcasses are, there the elephants will gather. He'd have been like, oh, he's making fun of Republicans, right? Or donkeys or something. Like that would have, that's what's going on here. Isn't it fun? By the way, you can study scripture like this for your entire life. Find tiny little details like this that are fascinating. So he's not just talking about the horrors of AD 70 though. This next section, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light and the stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. All the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, one from, end of from one end of heaven to the other. Clearly, this is not something that has already happened. I mean, this is, this is an end-timed end times prophecy. It's in very what's called apocryphal language. So whether we should take every part of this as historical, literal things that are going to happen or whether it's meant to be spoken as, as like, this is the grand expression of what I'm warning you about, it's hard to know. Literally, will the sky grow black and the sun go dark and the, and the, and the stars fall from heaven? Maybe. There's certainly ways in which it can look that way from earth, right? I mean, we get, we get a big enough explosion on earth and the, the sky goes black and the, the moon will be red. I mean, you, we see that kind of stuff now. So we see maybe it's just pollution. But whatever it is, this idea could be literal. It might not. There is a trumpet, and we'll talk again about the trumpet here in a second, but I think it's cool for you to know what's being talked about when you see the word trumpet in the Bible. Um, the, the idea of a shofar is a horn, not a, not a big brass trumpet. Um, and they make different versions of these. Ironically, this is probably bigger than what they mostly would have had talking about. This is maybe the priests marching around Jericho would have had the big old long twisted trumpets like this that are really cool. Um, although huge sometimes. Um, the, the, the guys on the Temple Mount, the one they blew is only like this, this, like that. But I figure you'd want to know what it sounds like, right? That's pretty cool. Be listening for that, right? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, how many of you were asleep? I was a bit like, you're awake now, aren't you, Bubba? I'm like, what the? It's the rapture. Uh, I got to do that every, every sermon with about 15 minutes left. That's when I need to throw that thing out there. All right. Um, okay, so the Revelation passage that references this, the sun... When opening a sixth hour, sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Some became black as sackcloth, the moon, full moon like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth like a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Again, apocryphal language, literal, possibly, 
figurative, possibly. We always have to engage with the Bible as it's intended, and sometimes we don't know. Um, after we've talked about that before. When we study Scripture, you got to be sophisticated enough to understand what you're reading. Um, you always take it the way it's intended, if you know. But I, I use the example of if I came home and found a love poem from Ginger um, sitting on the table, and it, and it said, sandwich meat, the eggs, and bread, and that kind of stuff, you know, toilet paper. And I'm sitting here going, what is she saying about her love for me with this? Like, what is she trying to communicate? What's the metaphor? Okay, I'm, I'm, it's not that I, I, should I take that literally? Well, yes, but I should read it for what it is, which apparently is a grocery list, not a love poem. And so if I read it as the wrong type of language, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. Same thing is true with apocryphal language. We do our best with it. This is what makes a study of prophecy really hard, a study of revelation really hard, is that type of language. But moving along, just so you'll know, this is often interpreted as a rapture. We'll get there. Just, uh, yeah, here we go. One second. Let's, let's jump all the way down real quick to um, uh, <coughs> Matthew 24, 40. Um, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One taken and one left. Um, very often, this is connected to the concept of a rapture, a time when Christians will be taken from the planet. Um, maybe most detail is found in, in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's the idea. And by the way, the last verse there, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Very often, we, we don't encourage one another with this. We scare one another with this. We're supposed to be encouraging one another. But here's the, here's the application here from all of this, this end time stuff. Jesus is going to not be very clear about stuff. He's going to reference that God knows. God the Father knows all of this stuff, but we don't. He, he, even, he even claims he doesn't while he, when his time on earth. We don't know when it's going to happen. Here's the lesson. So our natural tendency is to, I mean, so ask yourself if you do this, you drive more properly in the presence of a police officer. Anybody? Uh-huh. But you work harder if your boss walks into the room, right? Teenagers, maybe, maybe you filter your music a little more carefully if mom and dad are in the car, right? You ever been watching a movie that you forgot there was something inappropriate with it, but you're watching it like with your parents? You're like, this is a great movie, mom and dad. And then partway through it, you're like, oh, hey, hey, pause, fast forward. I mean, skip, skip. And that's, we kind of clean up our act, it's funny to me sometimes how I'll be sitting in a conversation and then someone finds out I'm a pastor and all of a sudden they all clean up their language because obviously pastors have never heard any of those words. We don't know any of those words. That's, they clean up their language. Why? Why is it? It's the same mindset. I think that's part of why it's vital. We don't know when the end times come because our natural bent would be to kind of waste all the time between now and then. And here's the lesson. The lesson of the fact that the end times are coming, here's the application. Okay, you ready? Here's what you're supposed to do. Nothing different. You're not supposed to live an extraordinary life because there's something extraordinary is going to happen. Our normal life is supposed to be extraordinarily eternally minded. We're supposed to live that way all the time. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find doing so when he comes. Is the, is the servant supposed to just hang out and do whatever he wants to do all the rest of the time, but when he gets message that the, that the master's coming, oh, I better get to work? No. The idea here is that we're to live as though we could be standing before God in an instant 
which by the way is the truth, no matter when he comes. Plenty of people have learned that. You can be standing before God in an instant, whether it's through a rapture or just plain old-fashioned dying. You could be standing before God in an instant. We should be living an extraordinary life all the time as Christians, abundant, full lives. Um, we should be living those things out, not distracted all the time, but investing in things that are eternal, eternal people, eternal word, God's word, God's kingdom. These are eternal and people. We need to walk away from the empty way of life. Otherwise, we find out that another week we failed to invest in eternity. Oops, then another week. Oh, another week, then a month, then a year, then a lifetime. Our normal life is too worldly. We need to be comforted by the fact that God has it under control, but urgent about the fact that we need to make sure people are hearing the gospel, that they are seeing that lived out in our lives. Suddenly, one will be taken and another left. You will not know before it happens. It will be sudden, whatever that means. So our normal, everyday life should be the gospel life. Next week is a great time to bring a friend, as I mentioned, if you have someone who doesn't know. Then we're going to focus some time on refocusing and refreshing. It's been a long year, a hard year for many of us, um, for, this, for the life of this church. Good, exciting, hard. And so we're going to fo- refocus on refreshing, on living out these ministries that God has called us to. Why? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. That's what we want. We pray. Father, um, I pray that you would guide us as we close out our time here, that you would lead us whatever you have for us, um, you would provide it. Thank you, Father, for the way you do that for us. Thank you for your provision. Um, thank you for the power of your word to teach us to remember to live this gospel life urgently. Help us to keep doing that even though we are comforted by the fact that you have everything under control. God, even as we see things happening even now in the Middle East and with Russia and politics and all the wars and rumors of wars are always there, Lord, help us that in our urgency that we would be agents of peace. And as agents of peace, we would experience the urgency of your gospel. Thank you for all of this in your son's name, Lord. Amen.